into the new year and we jump into a sermon series, uh, it's oftentimes uh, just our way of going back to reviewing something of our mission, vision, or values. And this morning, as we're jumping into this new sermon series, I Want That Mountain, uh, it's intended to be focused specifically on our values as a church. Our values as a church, vulnerable communion with God, intentional community with one another, and sacrificial mission to the lost. And so this morning we're going to be looking specifically uh, at how we grow in faith, how we grow in communion with our God, even amidst all the pressures that we feel, specifically that we felt this past year, and as we're beginning to see, 2021 isn't much different. More pressures will attend us in different ways. How do we grow in our relationship with the Lord? How uh, do we grow in faith for communion with Him? Now, last week, we touched on what biblical faith is, and that we have to like nail this down in order to get to the substance of the text. And we saw from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, a definition of faith. Hebrews 11:1 1 states this, it's a familiar text. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So again, this can sound quite abstract. It's like you read that and it's like, what again is biblical faith? This seems uh, so kind of wishy-washy. These are difficult terms, once again, because we don't have an equal English counterpart to these Greek words. And so it's difficult to bring definition to this idea of biblical faith. But remember, as we talked about last week, biblical faith bears truth in mind but then experiences something of that truth when it's acted upon. So when you think about the concept of biblical faith, you have to have reason, action, and experience. All three of those are a part of understanding what biblical faith is. Uh, if you remember last week, we talked about the illustration of the crocus flower. Right in the Midwest, North Midwest, right? You're dying for spring to come, literally. It's just snow keeps coming and coming, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and will we ever get to spring? And then all of a sudden, you see the crocus flower pop up. And so many in the Midwest will start, you know, putting on the short sleeve shirts and the shorts that, like, there's Dave Trinidad, perfect example, right? There he's got his shorts on. He's anticipating spring's coming, man. Warm weather is coming. And that's really the idea that we, we see the crocus flower. We see this sign of spring. We begin acting like it, and eventually spring comes. So it's true of biblical faith. It's the substance. It's the reasoned content the, the, the crocus flower that drives or informs our actions until that reasoned truth, that reasoned content is evidenced or experienced in full. That's biblical faith. Now, this is why we have the examples in Hebrews chapter 11. It, it bears out this idea of biblical faith, and it's important that we would consider just a few before jumping into chapter 12. The author illustrates biblical faith with Abraham and Sarah. If you look back, flip a page or look across the page, 
to chapter 11, verse 6, where it says that Sarah considered him faithful, who had promised that she would bear a child, and she was given power to conceive. Do you see biblical faith at work there? She considered God faithful, who had made a promise, right? And she was thereby given the power to conceive. She reasoned it, she ordered herself according, and God came through fulfilling his promise. That's biblical faith. It's why chapter 11, verse 19, Abraham considers that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, as the text says figuratively, he did receive him back. Again, this is biblical faith. Abraham is saying, this is what God has said. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to walk it out. And as he walks it out, he's encountering something of God. God is supplying in the moment. This is biblical faith. It requires consideration. It requires reason. Biblical faith is not unhinged from reason. But we also have to recognize that biblical faith is not only reason. Right? We've said it before that the mind is a wonderful servant but a lousy master. Right? We don't take biblical faith and boil it down to only this reasoning. If we can just figure it out and piece it all together, then we're okay. So we have to be careful to recognize that biblical faith includes reason, demands action, and therein there's experience. Biblical faith is not only reason, but it's not only experience. A lot of folks have this spiritualism that they kind of live according to, and it's this idea of this, this, these feelings and these experiences that are really unhinged from reason and truth. That's not true biblical faith either. That's not true biblical spirituality either. We need both. We need reason, action, and experience. This is biblical faith. It apprehends truth, then acts upon it, and therein experiences it. But finally, for our purposes this morning, biblical faith is profoundly, and we would say even fundamentally, at core, relational. Biblical faith operates from and for relationship with God. So the question then that we are tackling this morning is, how do we grow in faith? How do we deepen our relationship with God amidst all the pressures, confusion, chaos, burdens that we feel at this time? Remember, as we spoke last week, uh, our nation and our culture right now is obviously, evidently fractured. And within this fractured society, there's this call to align with a given position. And so it's, it's splintering, right? This call, this vacuum, this pull and tug to say, no, you need to be on my side or you're going to be canceled, shamed. You're either with me or you're against me. And so we see the fracturing. And as I mentioned last week, I see it within the church as well. This fracturing taking place. And the point 
of the matter is that our culture does not have a foundation to work from, and so their perspectives are ultimate. You have to have my perspective or we're separating. You're canceled, right? For the church, we have a foundation. The, the matters that surround us and the issues that surround us, it's not to say that they're important, unimportant, but they're not ultimate. What is ultimate for us is this foundation, this truth that we can stand upon, rest in, and have an anchor for our souls. It's this truth, this relationship with Yahweh God that we must seek to grow in and deepen our faith in amidst times where there is ever-growing burdens and pressures. And I want to be careful. Don't hear me saying that we shouldn't be involved in the conversations that are happening culturally. We must be, but the priority, the thing that we need to nail down first is this truth. We need to make sure that our heart is resting in the truth of who our God is and that we are growing in our relationship with him. So the question stands, how do we grow in faith? How do we grow in this communion with God amidst all these pressures? Three, three points. First and foremost, look at verse 3 of chapter 12. First, we must consider Christ as the ultimate example of faith. If we would examine the context here, right? We never just want to jump into a singular verse without considering the context that's at work amidst the text. As we consider the context, it's clear once again, Scripture anticipates these pressures and sufferings that we endure in this life. And in particular, it anticipates the pressures we endure as Christians, as followers of Jesus. So in chapter 11, we would see that the Christian life is depicted as this arduous pilgrimage. It's this difficult journey. And the idea is this world is, as the song goes, not our home. We're just a passing through. The idea is that the Christian life is this difficult journey of ups, deep, dark valleys, but yes, also at times, mountain peaks, where we can see the sun, we can catch its warmth for a moment, but then the next season we're going back down into these valleys. It's this arduous pilgrimage that scripture says, this is going to be the experience of the Christian life. There's going to be pressures, there's going to be hardships. In chapter 12 then, this Christian life is described as a marathon. And the idea, you're supposed to see the arena, right? And the Olympic Games taking place. And you're supposed to see all the, the toil and the energy that goes into these moments of running and running and running and running. It's a marathon race with obstacles, with difficulties in the way. Scripture anticipates the fact that we will endure great pressures. And while this text anticipates these sufferings, it also reminds us that we are not alone in our sufferings. There's a cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us. And the idea is like they've run their leg of the journey. And it's not as though they just sit back and now spectate in the stands. They are cheering you on. <laughs> 
They're cheering you on through all the craziness that we're going through right now. They're cheering you on in the moments in which you feel the pressures. They're cheering you on through this difficult journey. We're not alone in our sufferings. Others have gone before us and now, in some sense, cheer us on. But the overall emphasis, and this is the point that the text is eventually getting to, the overall emphasis is that while we are surrounded by these examples of faith, there is one to whom their examples point. And there is one to whom we must look. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. It's the idea of a looking to Jesus, considering him without distraction. In our Friday prayer time, it was the uh, illustration of the, the squirrel. Squirrel, you know, keeping the eye focused on the main thing. And the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, keep your eyes looking at Jesus. But the word then he uses here specifically in verse 3 is an accounting term. You should see, you know, some of this probably bores you, but... You should see the Excel spreadsheet. It's an accounting term where you're looking at every budget item across the Excel and you're examining it so that you're weighing the credits versus the debits and ensuring that it's all coming out correctly. That your express sheet is actually showing vindication, that it comes out correctly. In the end, the idea being that you should examine Jesus in all the sufferings that he endured. You are to weigh his obedience to the Father against the sufferings that he endured. But then as you go through each item, every suffering that he endured against the obedience then that he followed, you're supposed to see everything came out. What does verse 2 at the very end, how does it describe Jesus? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You take the credits of Christ's obedience and you weigh them against the debits of his sufferings and you watch how it all comes out. Jesus is fully, finally vindicated. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did it go for Jesus that he suffered all that he did but remained obedient and faithful to the Father? It worked out really good for him. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. This is the idea of considering. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility, weighing, yes, the credits of his obedience against the debits of his suffering and see that it worked out for him. He was vindicated by his father. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility. And so why are we, why exactly are we to intently examine and consider Christ? As the text says, so you won't grow weary or faint-hearted. So when you're sitting under the pressures that we've gone through this past 
year as we're experiencing the loss even here and now, as we're looking to this next week, not knowing as a nation how things are going to go. You'd be saying, is it really worth it? Is God really in this? Is he really trustworthy through all the pressures and hardships that we're facing? And you are to look to Christ and say, as the Father exalted Christ through his obedience and yet through what he suffered, so yes, it will be true of me as well who is in Christ. We consider Christ because as we consider Christ, we find that God is is trustworthy. We are to obey him. We are to follow him. We are to go after him, even amidst added suffering and pressures and difficulties, because ultimately he will vindicate us as well. The point of the text, consider Christ, who is the ultimate example of faith. But then secondly, Consider suffering as a loving discipline from the Father. This, to be straight, is my burden for us as a church. It's to consider your sufferings as loving discipline. Verse 7 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. The NIV will state it this way, which I think is helpful. Endure hardship as discipline. It's to consider your sufferings, the pressures, the pains that you feel right now as discipline, right? It doesn't get at the why of our sufferings. That's another conversation. It doesn't get at the why of our sufferings. It just gets at how we should not waste our sufferings since we're enduring them anyhow. How do we not waste our sufferings? We are to consider our sufferings as loving discipline. Again, it doesn't get at the question why this is happening. But it does show us, okay, how, here's how we not waste the moment, not waste the pressures that we feel. We must consider our suffering as loving discipline. Now, initially, this still might be a confusing discipline. Like, I don't know about you, but I hear the word discipline and I feel like I've done something wrong already. Right? We, we see discipline largely as just this corrective action. And of course, discipline involves correction. But it's more than that. Discipline, even as the text will go on to say, discipline refers to a training process where God the Father lovingly teaches his children to grow in reliance or faith upon him. It's like God the Father, if you want to think of it this way. He has chosen to bind himself to the circumstances of our suffering. He has chosen, if we can say it this way, yes, he inhabits the praise of his people, but he inhabits the sufferings of his people as well. He chooses to bind himself to our sufferings. And why? So that he can lovingly teach us through the sufferings, to rely on him in ever-increasing steps of faith and obedience. You see, it's not just this idea of, oh man, I've done something wrong and I need correction. It's the idea that I'm going through difficulty and the Father is encountering me and saying, here's the way forward. Know my love. Know my presence. Here's how you can grow in dependence upon me. He inhabits our sufferings. 
We see this as an example in Jesus' own life. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it states this. Again, with father and son language, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In his humanity, even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. He, he didn't learn from a place of disobedience like we oftentimes do, but he did learn obedience through what he suffered. He felt the depths of pain and struggle that we do, and he considered it as discipline, as an opportunity to encounter the love of his Father, and by that love grow in ever-increasing steps of reliance and faith upon him. Even Jesus, this was the way for Jesus. He grew in ever-increasing steps, faith and obedience, reliance upon his Father. I debated whether to take the time for this, but I think as a church, it's important for other reasons that maybe we'll get to in the future. But this example of discipline is also seen in the life of the disciples as Jesus cared for them. The Gospel of Mark highlights this in particular. It's important that we would see this. Let me just quickly take you through a journey of Jesus and his disciples. Mark chapter 3. Jesus gives his disciples authority to carry out his ministry, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to proclaim the kingdom. As they journey with Jesus, Jesus continually disciplines or trains them. For instance, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus falls asleep in the boat. You guys know the story, right? Disciples are rowing across. Storm is coming, Jesus is sleeping. What do the disciples do? It seems like a good option. They wake him up. Jesus wakes up, he stills the storm, he turns to his disciples and asks, where's your faith? What is that supposed to mean? <laughs> they woke him up. They actually went to him. I think if we're gen at least generous with the text, Jesus is at least saying, don't you realize who you are with? The one who can still the storm. Later in Mark chapter 6, you watch these ever-increasing kind of steps of obedience that Jesus is calling his disciples to. Jesus ups the ante in Mark chapter 6. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus says to his disciples, we skip over these parts oftentimes. He says to his disciples, you go give them something to eat. This is the moment where the disciples like wide-eyed, like there's 5,000 plus people here and you're asking us to feed them? What do we have? We don't have the resources. We don't have the money. What do you want us to do? We don't know what to do. Jesus has to step in and actually work the miracle. Of course, the disciples are baffled. Jesus leads them through that one. But then later the text says that their hearts were hardened because they didn't understand about the loaves. You say, what in the world does that mean? It's as if Jesus was calling them to not only realize who he was, but to exercise the very authority that he originally gave them. 
That's why later then in chapter 9, the disciples are asked to cast a demon out of a boy, presumably because they had already been doing that and they proved themselves in it. But they couldn't cast this demon out. Jesus again rebukes them. He rebukes them, saying, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? So Jesus himself steps in, just like he did at the feeding of the 5,000. He casts out the demon. And of course, later the disciples ask Jesus about it, and Jesus says, well, this kind of demon only comes out by prayer. So the idea is it's not only realizing who they were with, or what authority they had been given, but now how that authority is to flow from an intimate relationship with God in private prayer. There is so much in this for the church to learn. Do you see the call, though, to the point? Do you see the call, Jesus' call to his disciples, to this ever-increasing obedience and faith through the pressures that they were then finding themselves? Do you see the biblical discipline, the training that is going on? It's not just, it's not just about moral correction, but more so a training that teaches them to grow in ever-increasing steps of obedience and faith. Jesus' care and discipline, it's corrective in some ways, but it's also leading them to the greater measures of faith and obedience, understanding who he is, understanding how to exercise the authority that they had been given, but then learning how to rightly apply that authority from a place of intimacy with the Father. So back to the point. Discipline may be corrective, but discipline more so is how the Father leads us, trains us through ever-increasing steps of faith and obedience through what we are suffering. So we must consider our suffering as discipline. This life of suffering is like heading into the gym. There's work to be done. There's training to be experienced. So we must consider our suffering as discipline. You waste your suffering when you don't consider it as discipline or when you don't consider it as an opportunity to encounter something of the Father's transforming love and care. This is where I'm fearful for where we're at as a church and a society. We're at a point where we feel pressures and we're functioning at times without any thought to who our Father is and what He's promised us or what He's asking us to do next. It's all a reaction then to what's going on, the heat of the moment. It's a reaction largely based upon fear. Fear is directing us at this point rather than faith. And we have to slow down enough to say, oh, my God has bound himself into my sufferings and in binding himself to my suffering wants to demonstrate the love of his discipline so I might know how to grow in ever-increasing steps of faith and obedience in who he is and what he's promised to me. This is why discipline, our suffering, must be considered as discipline. God will be active and at work. To bring this to more of a practical place, as many of you know, like this past uh, month or so, Jody and I added three kids and then a fourth to our family. And it was chaos, right? 
There were good moments, incredible moments, like you feel the sun shining through, and it's just like, oh, this is amazing. And, and yet, there are a lot of difficult moments. We've, in other words, we're feeling the pressures of the moment. We're, we are exhausted at times. We sensed our limitations very quickly. We, well, I don't got wisdom for this situation. I don't know what to do in this moment. Right? You're feeling your limitations as you turn left and right. And the temptation even on the other end of those pressures, to be blunt, was, was to fall in one ditch or the other. On one hand, our, our, you know, the, the temptation as you come through these difficulties is, is to say, oh, weren't we a martyr for good? <laughs> right? Oh, man, didn't we suffer hard for a good cause, you know? Or, or we'd become the martyr. Woe is me, and I need all these added comforts right now to tend to all the, the wounds that I feel right now. Both of those things are human responses to what God intends to do through the pressures that we face. God wants us to consider the pressures and hardships that we've gone through and not just center them on ourselves. Oh, I'm the martyr or I'm the victim. But it's to say, no, he is teaching. What is my father teaching me through this? How is his love being communicated to me? How do I need to change? How do I need to be refined? How can I be more like my father? That's the idea. But so often, whether it's challenges like we faced this past month or just the chaos that we're facing within this world, our minds just get all caught up. Our hearts get caught up in the fray of things rather than stepping back and saying, oh, Father, center my heart in you. What do you want me to learn? How can I grow in reliance upon you through all the chaos that stands before me? How are you sanctifying to me my deepest distresses? We must consider our sufferings as loving discipline from our Father. Finally, and brief, maybe, uh, consider pain. This is not a great uh, point to end on. Consider pain as the necessary means to a fruitful life. Consider pain as the necessary means to a fruitful life. The, the second half of verse 10 states this. He disciplines us for our good that we may, oh, it's beautiful, share his holiness. Man. You, you, you could stop right there before even considering the pain piece. That's amazing. Christians need to stop and be amazed at that statement. He binds himself to our suffering so that he might lovingly discipline us so that we might share in his character, in his likeness. Who are we to deserve that? We were destined for damnation. And he has saved us and redeemed us. And yes, through the pressures and hardships that we go, he binds himself to us in those moments in order that he might discipline us so that we might share in his character. That's simply amazing. You can't just brush past these statements without seeing 
the reality that I once stood as a rebel against him, destined, deserving of eternal damnation. But this is the kindness that he works for our good. Verse 11, he says, for the moment, all discipline seems, there it is, painful. (laughs) It's painful rather than pleasant. And at this point, the pain that he's speaking of isn't just circumstantial. It's the work that he's doing in you to make you like him. It's the holiness that he's working into you through the circumstances, which becomes painful. It demands something of your vulnerability. It demands something of repentance. It demands something of your humility. And that can be painful. Because all the things that you've been holding on to through that time of difficulty, the pressures as they've come, you're holding on to these things that you're coping with in order to get through the situation. Now Jesus is coming in or the Father's coming in and he's knocking those things out of there. Nope, I want your reliance upon me. Not upon these comforts primarily, not, about, not on these things that you're finding, finding some sort of sense of hope in. No, that hope needs to rest in me. That comfort needs to be found in me. He's teaching us how to lean into him so as we lean into him, something of his character and holiness might be shaped in us. This is what God intends to do. This training in holiness is always an intimate, vulnerable process. Here's the cool thing about it. It's a process. (laughs) It's not all at once. It's not all overwhelming. Notice even the language when it refers to the fruitfulness. It says, later it yields fruitfulness, which is saying, okay, this is like an agricultural metaphor, like you plant the seed and you wait for things to grow and they finally have a harvest. Eventually, And so this this work of discipline in us to shape us according to his holiness is a process over time. That's good news for us. Because I think if God would just come in barging into our lives and start flicking out all the things, the idols, the things that we lean on, it would throw us for a tizzy. But he chooses it to be a process. Why? So that he can slowly and surely bind his heart to ours. So we could truly bear in ourselves something of his holiness. That we're not just kind of reactionary. Oh, I'm holy one moment just as I walk out the doors today. Right back to the old thing. But it's a slow process of binding our hearts to him. As he works his good purposes in us. It's painful, but the promise stands. It yields And as the NIV says, a harvest of peace and righteousness. (sighs) So get the logic of the text for a moment. He's saying that the purpose of our suffering, in part, is discipline. That the purpose of our discipline is holiness. And the promise that he tacks on is that it's going to bear a harvest of peace and righteousness. There are good things 
to be found in the pressures that you're enduring right now. They're good things to be found. Something of the Father's own love and care and discipline. Yes, there's hard things to be found because he's going to expose things in your life that you don't want to be exposed at this point, but he's doing this all so that your heart would be bound to him in holiness and through your life something of fruitfulness would be born, this idea of shalom and justice, peace and righteousness, so that you might truly be a beaming light in a dark world, so that the world would see, oh man, this harvest, this, you're different. You're not just fitting into the identity politics that are facing us today. You're not just fitting into the mold that the culture would say, here's who you're supposed to be. No, there's something different to you. You're living according to a kingdom ethic rather than a cultural ethic. There's something of substance to your heart and life that isn't true of the surrounding culture. But folks, we must recognize that pain will be part of the process of seeing holiness wrought within us. Pain is the necessary means to a fruitful life. But it'll be a good pain. As you go to the gym, gyms are opening up, I think, a little bit more, maybe outside the city, a little more than in the city. Uh, You're going to feel the pain, right? You're going to run on the bike, you know, run the bike or run on the treadmill and and, and you're going to feel the sort. You're going to feel the pain, but afterwards it produces something good. It strengthens you. This illustration is the same here. Pain will be a necessary means to a fruitful life. For the Father intends to encounter you, so that you might share in His holiness. So, with all of that, I think the most appropriate response is to take the Lord's table. What does the Lord's table do for us? It gets our eyes on that perfect example, Jesus, the ultimate example. As we consider the Lord's table and what's represented here, we should, in some sense, be doing that, you know, Excel sheet. Let's look at him. Let's look at his obedience. Let's look at what he suffered. And let's look at how he's been exalted. He's gone before us. Let's consider him. Let's consider that in Jesus, now we get the loving care and discipline of our Father. We must consider our sufferings in these moments as his discipline. He's caring for us. But also let's remember that as he's caring for us, doing the work of sanctification in us, there's going to be some painful moments. But with pain... There is a fruitful life. So I'm going to ask the musicians, come on up, and we'll transition into participating in the Lord's table together. Um, As we do this, it is always important to uh, state that the Lord's table is for those who have come to know Jesus. Um, It's for those who recognize what these elements represent. And it's probably important also to say that the taking of these elements, although it's a cracker and juice, there is grace to be communicated through it. We don't just go through religious 
action. This is an act of obedience, and when we humble ourselves in an act of obedience to take the, the elements that are here, while there's nothing mystical about the elements, there is grace that surrounds us in the moment, moment as we step out in faith to consider Jesus who he is, to consider the loving care of our Father. It's important that we would also know that God intends to impart his grace to us. And isn't grace something that we need in this season? Added strength, added wisdom, added focus, so that we're ever increasing in our reliance and faith upon him. So let's go ahead. Let's stand, come forward, grab the elements, and you can return to your seat and we'll take them together. As you grab your elements, it's the transparent piece that comes off first to grab the cracker and then the next piece. I know it's a little tricky. It's weird stuff we're doing these days. As you've opened it up, Let's consider Christ. The elements represent him, his broken body, his shed blood. Let's consider him, what he's endured, and yet through his obedience, how he's been exalted. But let's also remember that it's through this that we, we now get the blessing of the Father's loving discipline, his care for us through pressures and hardship. And let's also recognize that it's because of Jesus that our lives, yes, even through pain, can bear something of a harvest of peace and righteousness. Consider him Christ. Let's take it together. Father, we are so grateful that you bind yourself to our sufferings, you inhabit them, you're in it with us. Thank you, Jesus, for all that, you'd, all that you've suffered to make way for that care to be known. And oh God, I pray, I pray, I pray that you would refine us as your church. I pray that the sufferings we've faced and the pressures that we are facing would not just be wasted, but that we would hear, even as Isaiah 30 says, that the teacher would tend to us and even call us away from the idols that we have rested in and found comfort in. Refine our hearts, O oh Lord, so that we might bear 
for your name, for your sake, a harvest of peace and righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name.